Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got an actor-director you'll likely recognize, along with the musician-slash-composer who made beautiful sounds for one of his films, Jesse Eisenberg and Emile Mosseri. Now, Eisenberg is best known as an actor. He was nominated for an Academy Award for his portrayal of Mark Zuckerberg in The Social Network, which is just one of his dozens of credits. You've also seen him in Zombieland, The Squid and the Whale, the Now You See Me movies, and lots of indies. He also starred in the TV drama Fleischman is in Trouble last year alongside Claire Danes and Lizzie Kaplan. And if that isn't enough, Eisenberg is also a writer, playwright, and director. His feature debut as a director came earlier this year with When You Finish Saving the World, which began life as an audible original, which he also wrote. The movie stars Julianne Moore and Stranger Things' Finn Wolfhard, and it was released by A24, a trademark of quality. And, segue time, music for the film was composed by today's other guest, Emile Mosseri. Now, Mosseri spent years in bands, most notably The Dig, but really seems to have found his stride in recent years as a film composer. In 2020, he did the music for both Miranda July's Kajillionaire and for Lee Isaac Chung's Minari, for which Mosseri was Academy-nominated for Best Original Score. He's also worked on Joe Talbot's The Last Black Man in San Francisco and Jonah Hill's Stutz, which you'll hear a little bit about in this conversation. Earlier this year, Mosseri released his first album of original songs under his own name, which is called Heaven Hunters. It's a really personal, intimate record that sounds best on a pair of quality headphones, as it's sort of cinematic and somehow also small and quiet. Check out one of Eisenberg's favorite songs from Emile Mosseri's Heaven Hunters. This is called My Greedy Heart. These two get right into a great chat, talking about the various neuroses that fuel their art and stifle their ambition. Mosseri even talks about choosing whether to spend money on his therapist or an award season publicist. Eisenberg talks about his experiments using AI on a script, they don't go well, which leads to discussion about whether AI will impinge on creative jobs like theirs in the future. It's a great, fun chat. Enjoy. So we're recording this on voice memos on our phones as we talk over Zoom. And ironically, I'm looking at you on Zoom and I see some of the best recording equipment I've ever seen in my life. Oh, it's the best stuff known to man. And yet it's not being used at all now. I only have one nice microphone, but if I used it, then it would just be an unfair fight. It's true. Everything I said would sound so cool and clear. What is your best microphone or what is your microphone? I have one microphone. It's it's called a. <laughs> it sounds like I'm sponsored by them because I'm plugging them. It's like an AKG four fourteen. I know nothing about microphones. I had actually a funny thing. This company gave me like a free set of speakers and a free desk, and they like came over to like interview me to talk about the products. Mm-hmm. And I like watched some of their previous things, and it's kind of like MTV Cribs, but for studios. And they have like these huge studios and all this gear. And they came to mine, and I was like, I have this like small garage and 
not a lot of one microphone. I had to give them like a tour, a tour of my studio, which was like Aww. just four walls. I've never actually seen it in person. I've only seen it literally from the same angle, which is on Zoom calls with you. And it looks amazing. And I'm assuming there is a huge cavernous other space where you record the old kind of 20th century Fox orchestra. Let's get down to brass tacks here. So you, you sent me this amazing album. Well, you sent me certain songs from it. This is maybe now two years ago. Is that possible? Possibly. It's been sitting around for a while and, and been working on it for a while, but it, yeah, probably two years ago. It's, I don't, it's, it's hard with COVID to gauge. Okay. So I was digging into like, in preparation for this, digging into like my interactions with this brilliant album. And what I found was something funny to me, which is that like iTunes, there's a way to see like how many times you've played certain songs. And apparently I played one of your songs as much as I Don't Want to Live on the Moon by Sesame Street, which I just played for my kid when he was like two years old over like on a loop to get into sleep. And so that doesn't really count because you're not really like listening to the song as much as just having it drone on because it's familiar sure. to the kid. Now that song is great. Uh, and it's with Aaron Neville. It's a beautiful duet between Ernie and Aaron Neville. Nonetheless, like your track, which is number seven on your album, where the water's warm. I think it's like my favorite thing you've written and I've heard everything you've written. And it played on, you know, a loop on car rides in my ears when I'm biking through New York, you know, driving across the country, which we do all the time. We have these long trips. Um, and it's just the most incredible track. And it got me thinking about kind of what it's like for you who have, you know, written some of the most amazing movie compositions now creating your own thing, free of constraints, free of annoying people like me who give you like notes on your own music because I want to cut my <laughs> shot a little shorter and I need you to change your entire oeuvre based on it. Like, what is it like to then write a thing free of constraints? Is it like when I'm writing characters for myself because I write plays for myself and movie that I just did where I'm in and you kind of like feel more in control, but also it's kind of like a doing everything in negative space that you wish you could have done when you were not in complete control? First of all, thanks. I mean, that's the highest praise there is that, especially that I'm up there with Aaron Neville and Ernie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In terms of the, the, the streams <laughs> in your house. It was kind of terrifying to do it. You know, there's something that's actually safe about, in a mm. way that it's in a really lovely way about uh, writing film music, you know, because it's like, if it sucks, I can always blame you or another director. Mm. You know what I mean? I can always be like, oh, right. it would have been a, it would have been a masterpiece, but they wanted me to write. The, you know what I mean? There's like a safety thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas like if something that I put out sucks or, or people don't like it, I have nobody to point to. It's like a necessary trade-off in the arts, isn't it? Like the more you do more of the project, the less safe it is. I think so. Yeah, like the wins feel when it's feel bigger when it's something that it's... I mean, you probably... It probably feels the same with a play or, or a film that you direct and write versus a mm -hmm. film that you're acting in. Like it cuts closer to the bone, the criticism, and then the wins feel bigger when, you know, because it, you feel seen. Like I remember, you know, having like some, some music for a score, like being celebrated for like some piece of music. Oh, there's one thing that's actually funny. It's like a, a piece of music Michael Nyman wrote for Joe's movie for Last Black Man in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And it opens up the film and it's like this beautiful piece of music. And I always tried to knock it off the cliff and like write something better than it. But it was, the sequence was edited to it. So I couldn't, and it still happens where people are like, oh man, that first, 
song is amazing. And like, they're talking about somebody else's shit. And mm. at first I would correct them and be like, uh, that's, that's actually the one piece of music I didn't write. And then we do this awkward sort of song and dance where like, they say, oh, they feel obligated to say they like the rest of the music. So I stopped doing that at a certain point because it was like, just to spare us both this right, right, right. This little small play that we would <laughs> jump so into. Awesome. Whereas like if somebody digs something that I wrote on my own or for my own record, it holds more water in a way. Do you feel like since you have these two things, like I do too, have these kind of two paths, I do feel like a real sense of safety because I just finished directing a movie that is like kind of about where my family's from in Poland and, you know, I'm acting in it too. And it was like this very kind of, if like I screw this up, it's really on me. And then the next movie I'm doing is a third Now You See Me movie, which is about these magicians who rob banks. And I can try to screw it up as hard as I possibly can. And yet the camera's moving around me and there's a strobe light in my face. And there's very little I can personally do to screw it up. And I love the movie and I, I love it. And it's performing with, you know, a really comfortable net, I guess is the cliche. And I really, every time like it was very stressful in the movie I just made, I kind of projected myself ahead six months into the future of being on a set where I'm not tasked with the same kind of responsibility or panic about my own artistic vanity or whatever. And it was really comforting do you have this yeah. equivalent in any way? Absolutely. That's a, a gift to be able to oscillate between those two things. Because it's also just relative. Writing and directing a film and starring in a film, like I can't even imagine the sort of the triple, just the vulnerability and the, the wearing all those hats, having to hold it all together and, and feel like when there's money involved, all these people working on your, your vision and your thing, it's like the stakes are higher. So I imagine doing that and it's when you go star in a movie someone else's movie you're probably just like no no but you're right about the relative nature of like anxiety or the relative nature of like discomfort which is to say like 10 years ago when I was acting in kind of like a semi-popular kind of movie I was like more panicked than ever because I knew more people would see this just because of the nature of the thing it's interesting that you and I both have like the same reactions to this stuff, which is like, wait, which one is more um, terrifying rather than like us immediately saying like, which is more gratifying and no, enjoyable no. and exhilarating. I think that's a Jewish thing. Possibly. Yeah, maybe it is because my mind just doesn't go there. Like never do I think like, you know, it would be more fun next year. No, I never think that. I'm just like, OK, this would probably be less like this would make me less crazy and I would get to go to Poland and I think I would probably have yeah, fewer panic attacks once it's done because I will have feel, felt like I accomplished the thing I set out to accomplish. But what an awful way to view the world, right? <laughs> yeah. You want to do a good job because you can look at it in two ways. I want to write a good film score or make a good album because I want to, for with a film score, I want to like elevate the person's vision and I want to make it like the, the, the positive way, the sort of like fantasy that we have about the way that we think about this. So you want to, you want to make something that's going to connect to people and all this stuff. But mm -hmm. I think that's maybe tucked in there, but on the surface, it's more fear-based and anxiety-based. Like, oh, like these people are going to see it. There's a, like, I work better under that kind of accountability. Like, oh, oh. I'm going to be in this, like, this will be in a movie theater and these people, other people will be in this theater and they're going to hear it. And it's usually mm. like a, there's like a handful of people in my mind that like mm. opinions hold a lot of water and right. like, and I'm like, and they always go to them like, oh, like they're going to like, I have to make this great or they're going to know I'm a hack or they're going to ask me for my tickets. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, sir. You know, that's the imposter syndrome thing. You don't have to name names, but are those people 
like musicians? Are those people, you know, kids you went to high school with? Some of them are both. Yeah. I mean, my old bandmates, like we wrote music together for like, since I was 11 years old till I was 33 years old, I would like in, well, since, since we were 15, Eric and, and David and I were in a band together called The Dig. And that was like, so like for 20 years and all like growing up together, we were writing music together. So like, they're always in my head and I, you know, mm-hmm. like, what are they going to think of this? And then there's like, there's my cousin. Why your cousin? He's a writer and he's really smart and I just look up to him. And my friend Dan is a poet, a high school friend. Like there's certain people like, oh, like when I think about getting a job or something, like a like a shiny job, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to tell this person I got this job, you know? Mm-hmm. Then you have to be like, right. oh, is there a reason to do this job to just tell this person at a party that I got this job? Like there's the two parts of it where you're like, I think we've talked about this a little bit in the past, like separating those things or like how to... Because I think for me, like you... Also, I'm coming from a place of being in a band that was struggling to make a living for so long mm-hmm. and struggling to like get recognition and or get press or get any kind of or get seen at all um for a long time so now that like I'm working in films and things and things have opened up for me in this other realm I I still carry like this sort of PTSD of yes. of like needing to prove myself or like having a cool answer at a party about oh, what are you working on and and then you get to say something cool yes this is the like the wound that fuels all ambition is like the thing that you know, is no longer actually a threat in your life, but something that was like embedded in you as a child when you were, you know, really vulnerable. <laughs> like it still, you know, has some weird hold on you. I guess when you, yeah, you put it that way, it, it, it is before even like, like living your twenties and being on the road and like trying to make it in a band. It happened probably before that. Of course. Right. Yeah. That ends up fueling some weird ambition and that you can't place and have actually no need for it because you have all the food and shelter that you... You get sort of, it's sort of a mirror-hungry thing. You're like, oh, I just need to, I need to be seen or need to, you know. But I imagine it's the same for you when, you, when you're in, starring and acting in someone else's film. Like, a lot of it's out of your control, but it's completely out of your control when you're in someone else's project. Like, what gets made, like, when it gets released, how it gets received, and, like, the success or of it is completely tracked to some to something else that's that's not at all connected to you so right. you you can sort of let yourself off the hook in a way yeah i basically just like live in a bubble i don't watch the things i've been in or read about them or you don't know and i try to like tell people who i'm working with like i don't really want to like engage in that stuff i mean i'm not impolite if people want to talk about something i'm happy to but i just mean people know i don't watch the things and i don't go to the you know parties unless i'm contractually obligated to because it just makes me depressed it makes me depressed because like audiences reactions or like let's say like just any reactions are just very different to the experience that i have or think about like i was in this movie that was I thought like the greatest thing in the world called The Living Wake. It was made in like 2005. I was like 21 or something. And it was like the greatest thing. And like no one saw it. And then like some people saw it and some people didn't like it. And it was just so, it just made me feel kind of nauseous that it could be so different from A, the experience I had on it and B, the opinion that I had of it. And so I was just like, I never want to engage with this stuff. I don't want to hear really other people's opinions too much, even good opinions. And so I just stopped engaging and it's kind of made me neurotic in some ways because like I find myself like not biking down streets where there are like movie posters because of (laughs) my own stupid neuroses. But on the other hand, I don't have to 
you know, live in the world of outsider reactions to the things I'm involved in. I don't think I have this this self-restraint or the control to not look at stuff. Like I will like search and Google and Twitter reactions to things. Like I, I like the idea of being somebody that can't like can detach from it. And I think for whatever neuroses you're downloading from that, that mm-hmm. path, I'm sure it's way healthier than the alternative because the alternative is like what I'm doing sometimes is like, I feel like my self-worth is so plainly placed in the hands of external forces. The difference between you and me is I I can assure you more people hate me. Like I'm acting in commercial movies. There are many, many people who hate me. Well, there's just so many more people that are aware of you. You can't compare because I'm like this sort of behind the scenes artist, but I can imagine the sort of weight of that. The scale of it is so huge that it would have more weight if you were to engage with it. Yeah, maybe it is. If I were the place that I had that kind of under the the bright lights that you're under, maybe I would be like, oh, I actually can't engage with this. We have similar like, you know, chemical, emotional, mental makeups, but it's totally very different like public reactions. Like people think all people hate the thing that I hate about myself that people hated about me when I was very young. Like, and sort of like see that online, like it yeah, would just yeah. like ruin me. I don't think anybody has that reaction to you. No one thinks like, wow, Emil's a loser who probably has like mommy issues. No, they think your music is beautiful. Well, like they it. don't have to know. They don't have to see my face. Like, that's the thing is like, the, I, I am those things. I am a loser with mommy issues. That doesn't come through in my greedy heart. That's a great plug of my greedy heart. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Well, that, hey, you know, I think anything on that scale, you're engaging with something, you're, you're putting something in your bloodstream that's really powerful. And I think you found a way to navigate it beautifully where you're like, if you're like, okay, I, I can't fucking look at this shit. It's going to drive me crazy. Yeah. Because if somebody sees something in you that you already have, it reinforces some insecurity you have about yourself. I mean, that's very, that's like universal. But the thing about fame that is so unnatural is that just the amplification of it. I only understand it through friends of mine, like yourself right. and other friends of mine mm-hmm. that are in that situation. Uh, but I, it's funny because it's something that like I want, like you want, you, like I was raised in a way to like feel like, oh, I had to accomplish all these things or I'll feel like a loser. And I don't think that about other people at all. Like I don't, like I have so many musician friends that are brilliant that I just, I'm jealous of their craft. And if not a lot of people are listening to their records or they're not in, you know, don't have a certain amount of recognition, I don't think of them as losers at all. The recognition that I've gotten, like, or the things that I've that I've gotten in my life, I didn't have any of that in my in my system until I was like thirty six, thirty five, you know. And wait, sorry, any of what? Any of that, like doing press or or oh, getting oh, recognition or getting like, I had that one the one experience of doing an an award season campaign mm-hmm. when I was thirty five, mm-hmm. which is a couple years ago. And it was like, even as like a composer, like behind the scenes or whatever, like a small dosage of that drug in my system, mm. like fucked me up so yes, yes, massively. Yes. Right. Just talking about myself, doing interviews for four months, trying to get a, a nomination. It's so unnatural. Yeah, it, it was, I mean, at the time it was like, I remember like I could, I had to choose between like, continuing to be able to afford my therapist or having to hire an award season publicist. Right? <laughs> That's <to> like- <laughs> an amazing. <laughs> it's like the most unhealthy, unhealthy. Yeah. And I don't think alloc- insurance covers publicists. <laughs> no, no. I think they're all out of network. Mine certainly doesn't. Yeah, but no, I was like, it's just like the most unhealthy reallocation of funds. Of funds, yes, exactly. Just to like talk about myself 
in different capacities. In different capacities, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying to sneak in the, the, the therapy into my yeah into, into the, the interview into the interviews. Yeah. yeah, you just have to ask them if you could lie down under the movie poster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. No, I was also particularly fucked up because it was like it was during the pandemic, so it wasn't even a right. physical version of it where I was going to like screenings of the movie and like and like right. some more organic talking to people and having drinks. Yeah, it was all like on Zoom. But my point is that like even that really kind of fucked up my brain chemistry in a way that I can't even imagine like for like a child actor or because there's a kid in the film who was like who's like six years old when they made Minari, like when they made that movie. Oh, right. And I'm like right. getting those kinds of lights at that age. Like, how do you or like, I mean, you were young, you were young mm-hmm. when when Squid and the Whale and all that. Yeah. Like, it makes sense that you found a way to take control and define your relationship with it rather than let it like run you. There is a huge deficit in my life, which is that, like, I went to one party six years ago, and J.J. Abrams was at the party. And, like, just because I don't go to these things and don't know how, like, really don't handle myself well, my wife, like, nudged me over because he said hi to me. I'd never met him. But he said hi to my My wife, like, nudged me over. She's like, go talk to him. So I talked to him. And, like, I don't know, six months later, I had written, like, a television pilot, and he bought it, and he was like, it was so nice to meet you at that party. Anyway, the deficit in my life, this sounds kind of obnoxious to even bring this up, but my wife always says, like, you see what happens. Like, you go to a thing, you meet somebody, you're nice to them, you know. I'm like, oh, right, right, right. (laughs) But, like, it's so, it makes me so uncomfortable comfortable that like I just I can't bring myself to do it frequently or ever anyway so my wife and also my father who's also a very thoughtful person yes tells me that I'm kind of like oh you're, you know you but you know that but anyway it's a compromise that I have to make for my sanity or whatever to like kind of stay I'm, I'm currently in Indiana where my wife grew up and where there are no you know Hollywood uh, parties but anyway god this is so obnoxious well there might be there up. might be no, well, you I'm could check ch- outside. I'm looking <laughs> out the window. Um, but wait, let's let's. I'm. I feel so embarrassed that I even brought all this. No, up. you shouldn't. No, I think that makes sense. But, but I think the trade-off, like, is that you're actually you're able to control how much of that shit gets into your life, and everyone has a different relationship with it. Like, yes, maybe. Yeah, maybe it I is that. So. It would be great to just be like kind of um, emotionally stable and be able to do everything. Well, you're, we all are like built the way we're built. So like you, with that, yes. you can... You can't change the scorpion. <laughs> hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. 
Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of the TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. We met in a very strange way, not in a strange way at all, in like the most typical of ways, which is that um, I was looking for a composer for my movie. And the strange part is that I wanted to compose the movie because basically I'd written this audio book for Audible. And my thought was like, oh, it'd be great to have one of the characters in the audio book be a musician, because I was thinking it'd be so cool to have the musician play songs and so fully exploit the medium of an audio book. So I wrote this character who's like the 17-year-old kid who's like kind of a fledgling singer-songwriter who writes these kind of folky songs that are not great, but not bad. So you can think, oh, he has a future, but he's not great now. And so we're not kind of mocking him. And we're also not exactly celebrating him. And I thought, I did all this because I know my own musical skill set, and it is fledgling 17-year-old folky singer-songwriter that's not that great. And so I thought, this is great. I can write songs to the best of my ability, and they will be perfectly in line with this kind of um, not great need that I had. But A24, this you know amazing film company for which you did a few movies, and they're you know, some of their best soundtracks of their, you know, canon suggested I meet you. And it was immediately clear in talking to you that I didn't have, you know, uh, like what it took, but I had sent you my songs and you very sweetly and politely didn't insult them. But when I said they sound like kind of like a musical theater geeks music, you kind of didn't disagree. I'll put it that way. And so <laughs> you started like writing your own stuff and it was just astounding. And I felt like I kind of like learned about what it's like to make music for a movie through working with you. And my biggest regret of doing that movie was that I did not get enough footage because what I found, we, we were shooting in 16 millimeter during the pandemic. So it was not like easy to shoot a lot, but I wish I got more footage because anytime there was like an excess of footage, like of somebody, like let's say walking fully across the street, as opposed to just like the last few steps of them going onto the street before the dialogue starts or whatever, we would put a track of yours in and it made the movie like a thousand times better. And I feel so naive and stupid and regretful that I didn't shoot more because anytime there was a room for it, I, your songs enliven the movie in such a wonderful way. First of all, thank you. Oh, and wait, let me just say you rewrote the songs that I sent you. So those are not in the movie for fear of people listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking it, thinking it's, and thinking it's. No, they were great. It just, it, it, it's about trying to like connect the a score to the songs because that was like the challenge was like writing something because the score, like the songs weren't supposed to be great and the score was supposed to be great and they're supposed to be connect, connected. They're supposed to be made out of the same fabric. So that was the challenge is like, how do you make something that's not intentionally great connect to something that needs to be great? When we were first talking about it, I, I mean, I thought it would be interesting to see if like, 
the lead character's music can somehow like, you know, transition into score. And so you started kind of working with these like lo-fi instruments, right? Yeah, I started working with this tiny little keyboard from the 80s and my brother-in-law had. And I just sort of made these songs that I thought that um, 17-year-old kid would, would write. Well, but I had your lyrics and I just, it just kind of went with you know that that vibe and and it uh then it was it was also like fun to just rearrange and reimagine that stuff into score it wasn't out of uh laziness but there was something nice to like if something is supposed to feel handmade and and not mm-hmm. and not pristine then it's mm-hmm. gonna it's going to like the the day you record something the day you conceive of an idea that piece of music is actually, it lives in the film. It doesn't have to be re-recorded in a more professional way mm. with an orchestra and all these things. And actually, just in general, I find that to be true. Like I, I had that with other films with with uh, Minari. I, I had that where I was like, I tried to re-record this stuff in a more pro way on a nicer piano mm-hmm. with a nicer microphone. And I couldn't get the vibe. What is the final Minari instrumentation? It's just the stuff, it's it's just recorded on the, like the piano's recorded on this on this voice memo microphone that I'm rec- really? recording. That, you mean yeah. that opening kind of piano that comes in yeah, underneath yeah. the opening track? Mm-hmm. It's all like... Michael Nyman? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that... Yeah, so that's no. a voice memo? Yeah, it's like a voice memo piano. Wow. So like it's... Because also like the distance between the time when you write something and then record it and capture it, like the, the greater that the time between those two things, the harder it is to like recapture the spirit of it you know if you come up with something in the moment it's it's almost impossible to to regenerate so and i think also just like growing up when being in a band like when there was this idea to make a record because we're old enough that like that's what kind of like what you did before like it was like you needed to get studio time to make a record you needed to get like pay pay whatever 500 bucks a day or something is really expensive or more to like be, you need to save up and figure out how to like get some time in a, in a studio with microphones and record. And then you had to like, on the drop of a dime, like pull up the feeling of a song that you'd written right. a year before or months before. And like, that's sort of how records were made. And mm-hmm. uh, then people started making records in their bathroom, in their, in their bathroom, in their bedrooms, maybe their bathrooms too. Depending on the echo. Yeah, yeah the echo and the layout, you know, depending on the Right. But, uh, but I think- It was a bidet. <laughs> Yeah, there's a bidet. Yeah, that is a good way to get inspired, I think. Just yeah. have a bidet. Well, just a place to put the four-track. <laughs> yeah, this idea that you that's how you got to, like, record, or if it's going to be in a film. Like, that's another thing. Like, if a score is going to live in a film and be in a movie theater, it has to sound a certain level of, like, pr- like quality, like, like professional. It has to be pro. Mm-hmm. And then, but I realized that that's not true. It was liberating to have the thing that, I did that was the most celebrated be the thing that was the most poorly recorded and mm. Sc- mm. like in the most scrappy way. Everybody had can make a record on GarageBand and Logic and Pro- like people could have get a microphone and an interface and just record a record in their in their bedroom, bathroom, bed, bed you know. I remember even hearing this thing that Paul McCartney said, which I it's, it's so romantic. I I love it. It makes sense, but I don't know how true it is, but it's he said that the reason their songs were catchy when they started writing songs were like they couldn't record them. So they had to write stuff that was catchy enough that oh. they could remember it the next day. Because oh. when they were teenagers make, writing these songs, 
There wasn't a fucking voice memo app that they could, they, there wasn't like, they had to like get into a studio to record. Do you have any kind of cynicism or like pet peeves from the way music is typically scored in, you know, I don't know, typical Hollywood movies or something? I, I do. I probably said some of these things to you when we first met about music. Like when I, when I talked to a director about the project, I, there's this idea of like music being emotionally manipulative. And I've only like recently just re- like realized like it's supposed to be emotionally manipulative. That's the entire job. Like my entire job as a film composer is to manipulate people's emotions, but you want to do it in a way where they don't feel it happening at the time, where they're not aware that you're doing it. So it's like, it's just the difference of being emotionally manipulative, be- being good at it. Like that's like the best composers I think are just really good at being emotionally manipulative. But do you have like a cynicism at all about like um, like technical stuff? I have a cynicism more about like, melody and if something feels saccharine and something feels like it's pulling me too hard like if if i'm in a movie and they're trying to make me feel a lot it's so interesting we we go to a movie we want to feel things but we also don't we don't yeah of course we're at odds with ourselves exactly we're wrestling with ourselves so if something is like pulling too hard or heavy-handed and pulling at your heartstrings you're like ah nice try i'm not gonna cry try to get me there's a built-in cynicism when we all go to the movies and there's also mm-hmm. a built-in desire to get pulled past that cynicism right cross that threshold there is a scale so where like film music you know, is a, a big part of that kind of like accessible commercial movie typically will have lower threshold of you know will have something that you might consider manipulative because you've seen so many movies and you're on the inside of it yeah there's also something to be said for like certain kinds of movies like within like there's certain scores like for this type of score it's the best right. kind, like you know what i mean thing and like yeah. i i i try not to be a snob about it and I, I genuinely am moved by film music a lot it's also like that with just music in general with certain songs or certain like i don't think i have a good ear for pop music in, in mm-hmm. like things things to me sometimes feel really poppy in my brain it tells like the rest of my brain, like, oh, he's not going to like this. Don't send this to him. He's not going to like it. Just based on the right. packaging. Because right, it's right, like, right. oh, this is not cool. I remember being 16 and, like, my friends loved Bob Dylan. And I didn't I didn't like Bob Dylan. And then I heard, like, one sort of more accessible song. It was like, don't think mm. twice. It's all right. And then I, like, I fell in love with that song. And from there, I let myself listen to all of it. And then they, like, became my favorite artist. That's interesting. There's a barrier you have to cross to be able to get into art. And it happened when... When we were in bands, sometimes we'd open up for bands that I was like, I don't want to open up for this band. Like, they're fucking not cool or whatever. And then, like, we'd go on the road with them for for a month and it would be like, you 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 start to like one song and then another song and then you get to see mm. the actual art that's past the packaging, which is like the genre right. of the art, you know? Yes. Like, I still haven't, I still haven't gotten certain, past certain packaging of like, like fantasy stuff or like, like certain, like like dragons, things with dragons and wizards and stuff. Me too. Like I can't, yeah, find a way in there. Yeah, my dad used to uh, teach a class where he talked about uh, was in like the sociology department. Talked about like being on the inside of something versus being on the outside of something. Like once you were inside with that band, traveling with them, you were able to see the artistry and you were able to mm-hmm. see like uh, the effort and the thought that went into the thing. But being on the outside of it, you only saw this kind of like package which turned you off for whatever set of immature reasons maybe i think they are immature reasons i think we love to hate on shit and there's another element of it which is like the immature reasons for me and musicians that like in my situation were like it's really hard to divorce your jealousy and 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 uh like measuring yourself up to it like why do these people have what i what do they have that i don't have and like it, it it affects the way you listen to it it's the same with anything like if i were to 
to like show you a piece, a piece of like a poetry or like, or two lines of something and tell you Bob Dylan wrote it or tell you that, that Mitch McConnell wrote it, you right. would experience it differently. That's why I actually kind of like sometimes like you listen to on some of these streaming things, you can listen to music without knowing who it is. And you can be like, oh, I fuck, what the fuck is this? I fucking hate this shit. And then you look right. at it and it's like somebody that's really cool that you're supposed it's to like, like. Oh, it's like Mitch McConnell. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh shit, this is the new Mitch McConnell. Fuck. And then you're like, now I love it. And it's like, yeah. would you have liked it if you didn't know it was him? In oh man, that guy, yeah. Okay, yeah. changing to my last gear, which is something I semi-asked you a few years ago, but I do wonder, like, okay, I remember I was telling you, like, I wanted to use, like, some of your songs that you had written for the movie we did together and, like, just couldn't because there was, like, no place for a song or whatever. Like, when I write, like, a monologue in a play, I, uh, like, I can't use that same monologue in another mm-hmm. place. It's like a character from that play talking. Like, it's, it's just not... Part- but, like, with music, I mean, is it possibly can it be interchangeable can it be re-instrumentalized and Mm -hmm. like this my favorite track on your new album is instrumental like why is that not in a movie could it be in a movie if i played that for you would you know if it was in a movie or if it was on your album yeah it could be in a movie or it could be licensed for a movie i am lucky as a musician we are lucky as musicians to be able to work in a medium where we can you write something for one thing and then like because it's probably like about if i write music for a film probably about 30% or less of that music that I've written ends up in the film. And then I have 70% of that, 30%. that stuff. Wow. I don't know. I don't know. No, 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 no. That's amazing. That's, that's yeah. kind of what I would expect. Yeah. So I it's mean, like, that, that makes sense. It depends. It's not like a hundred percent of the stuff you write is going to work. So you just generate no, no, no. a bunch of music. So then you have, you have all this other mountain of music that you can, you can reuse for different things. I think that people get romantic. Like I, I, in my, in my experience, most, most filmmakers don't, don't really care if you wrote something for them or like all they no, care about not. is like, if it works in their film, like, like, like how do no, you feel about not. it? Like, it's like if I had written something, just like you want something that's going to make your film work and yeah. it doesn't matter if I wrote it for, for somebody else or for like, no God, of course not. No. So if you write something, some text that is not gonna that doesn't end up in the film you can't maybe you can probably strip it for parts some things some ideas it's not usually with dialogue it's so specific to context unless you're you know writing kind of like jokes or something you know or like pithy thoughts about life or something that you want to include but those are usually stupid because people don't talk that way if you're writing naturalism people don't really talk that way yeah yeah there's certain things that i'd written for like something that i i wrote for one direct director ended up in like another film, and I and the same recording, not different instrumentation. Yeah. Uh, this one was uh, slightly different instrumentation, like we adapted it. But yeah, like there's certain mm-hmm. things, you know, I'd written for something that I'd written for Joe, but that he didn't li- it didn't work for his movie. He ended up um, finding a home, a little piece of something found it, found a home in, in Miranda's film in Kajillionaire. Mm-hmm. So like. Like I, or things like that, you know, but like, and something that I'd written for her ended up in, uh, in this Jonah Hill film. It, so you kind of like, just look at everything you have and like, okay, what, that's a good thing. You're just constantly writing and generating stuff. It's, it's mm-hmm. nice that way. But for my album, it's like, that's the one instrumental track on the record, you know, like there. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I think it's just cause I got sent it early or something. No, I listen. Do I love the vocal tracks? Of course I do. Is In the Shadows amazing? Yes. Does my six-year-old love it? Yes. Did my six-year-old love the video for My Greedy Heart? You bet. 
and wonder what all those rocks were doing in that field. And I didn't tell him about death or what a cemetery is. Oh, yeah. No. That's just all great news. No, but I, I wasn't saying it to bust But I felt it. For, I felt it. But I, <laughs> well, I'll find the way. I'll find the way to just deconstruct any compliment. I remember like Wilco put like uh, some of my like uh, film scores on their like one of their like t- playlists or whatever. Mm-hmm. Some other artists that did like uh, Tom York did one and it was like I found a way to be like, oh, this is the with Wilco. I was like, oh, this was their like their new keyboard player that just joined the band. Like everybody got to put on a song mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and Jeff Tweedy didn't yeah. hear this song like. It was their new keyboard player that they're like, just they were, in my, in my mind, they were in a van. And they were like, means that Jeff Tweedy thinks you're ugly. Well, yeah, yeah. it's very likely. Yeah. Mark Marin said this thing that he was like talking about his jealousy when he like, he, was, he said like when he watched Louis C.K. show and he saw the, the Louis logo on the show, it just was like, to him, his, his TV said like, fuck you, Mark Marin. Like that's how, right, that's right, like, right. that's how he perceived it. I'm kind of got to this place with it where I feel really like, it's all just making music. It all feels more connected to me now than it used to. I used to think more of it. I used to think of it like more like compartmentalized. Like, oh, this is one thing. And film music is not, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, it's not real because it's a, it's for a film. But I don't, but again, I don't think of that way about Johnny Greenwood's music or Mika Levy's, or like the... Right, of course, but it only applies to you. Me too. I know. I think people are doing me a favor by by being in my movie or something. But when they're in another movie, even if I don't think that movie is good, it's because they really know that that's the good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They pity me because of my hair. Is it, um, I know. This is, absurd. This, is, this is till death, I, I think. Know. I know. I know. No, it's awful. It's awful. My dad tells me, no one does you favors in Hollywood. And I, I was like, he sounds like an old time movie. But no one's going to do you favors here, kid. But no, he does tell me that because I'm like, I, I think these people just feel bad for me because I have a slight astigmatism. He's, no one knows you have slight astigmatism. They just, they're yeah. hiring you because they thought you'd be good for the job. <laughs> you know. Did you think that your parents would pay your friends to hang out with you? Did you ever think about that as a kid? No, but I, I didn't hang out with you because I felt so like guilty. I remember my, you know, no, God, this is down a different path on a different time, on different SSRIs. Can I say one more crazy thing? I started using ChatGPT when I was in Poland, like, like, because I was like, oh, I got to rewrite this scene because we're shooting on an airplane. There's only six rows on the airplane, so I can't have them walk through the whole thing. So out of curiosity, I go on ChatGPT and I'm like, hey, ChatGPT, uh, wh- how, how would you shorten a scene and take it? And it gives me the worst version of the script. And I said, no, be more subtle with the humor here. Just take out, like, how, how would you truncate this scene? It's more experimental because I'm not really expecting it to do anything great. Anyway, it's not good, but it's a really impressive conversationalist, but it's just not good at doing the thing that, like, I know how to do. Is there any equivalent in your world? Are you panicky about anything in that? I, I am a little bit. Right now, it's not at that level. It's, yeah. Right now, it's not scary, but it's, it's, yeah. what, it's what's scary is where, where it's going to go you know, how good it's going to get. And I think in a way I feel a little bit like my, maybe my ego or my, um, my like self-inflation will like help alleviate, like serve as an aloe vera for this anxiety. Interesting. But honestly, I'm, I'm a bit of a dunce when it comes to this. Like I don't understand it. I'm, I'm scared of it. I'm sort of scared of it in the way that I feel like I'm supposed to be. You know, there's also, there's a fear with me a little bit that I ha- I have had the anxiety of like, oh, like I just started to make money uh, for the first time in my life these last couple of years. And then like, mm-hmm. oh, it's, are the robot's about to take over everything. And it was, you know what I mean? Is there any part of it that's exciting to you? Is there anything that you're aware of in music that's positive with regards to technology? I'm kind of not the best person to ask this question because I'm a, I, I can barely like 
turn on a synthesizer. Like oh, I, I like I have synthesizers and I, but I can't, I know that if I spent two hours reading the manual, I would be better. I'd be able right. to pull more out of it. Yeah, yeah, but no, instead I, I just I totally fuck around and like, I just plug it in really fast to fuck around. I know. So like, I, yeah. I, I don't have that sort of technical brain to engage with AI and, yeah, but but other people do. My friend Bobby Kerlick, who who produced the record, is brilliant mm-hmm. artist and film composer. He goes by the Hacks and Cloak. That's his artist moniker. But he he made a video for a song he started showing me yesterday. And he embraced AI and and like made these charcoal mm-hmm. drawings and sort of and used it in a visual way that was like actually really inspiring to me. You know, mm-hmm. it was like this other artist too, this photographer named Charlie Engman, who who did the the Kajillionaire album art is a friend of Miranda's. Like he has done all this amazing photography, mm-hmm. AI generated photography, but musically. So I, I, I'm like, oh wow, like these people are embracing it, but it has to be sort of conducive to your style. And yeah, that's true. I think in a way it's better to be on the artistic side, just like to like embrace it. And I wish I, I could, I wish I had that brain. Oh no, I tried to embrace it like as much as possible. And it just was not producing anything very good. What so, was this, your experience with the script? It was just like how you shorten this certain scene? Yeah, God, I was giving that as like an example, but really it was stuff like I would ask it to like evaluate these like 15 pages and see if there's any inconsistency. Like I was just kind of testing it. I didn't really need, because we were so far along like in pre-production, but so it was, but but just it didn't give anything good. I would even ask it like, hey, could you think of a better, I don't know, joke? Can you think of it? And it never did. Or, or hey, can is this, what are you gleaning from this? passage and if it was 10% more sentimental what would that look like stuff like that and it was just nothing good I think it just couldn't get the nuance from my very sort of basic understanding of it is that it's not capable of generating a new idea it's only an a- amalgamation of existing things but you could say the same thing about people so uh, yeah, like, I don't true. think that's I think it's really just like getting that kind of nuance but there's a new book called uh, what is it called I Am Code or something written by a guy I know Simon Rich who's a really funny writer and his experience with something called Da Vinci code no code da vinci 02 and this was like a year before chat gpt came out he had access to this thing through a kid he went to um elementary school with and it's like apparently 10 times more powerful so i think probably what's happening is there's stuff we don't have access to that can do all the stuff we're worried about this new thing you know doing in the future yeah no that's terrifying as a filmmaker would you ever be like ah let's save money on um on music and get a computer to do it? No, not anything like in the arts arts, but I'm editing now and uh, it would be great to have one of the actors say a slightly different word than they said on set. And if we can use what would be kind of like considered deep fake te- technology, which we which we which did we in did. our yeah, yeah, at, at the, the end, end yeah. but that was purposeful deep fake technology. What I mean is to like change a word. And if that was like, you know, $2,000 to do as opposed to $100,000 and five weeks of work to change one mouth movement. I would do that with consent from the actor. Yeah, why not? I mean, it's yeah. no different than, you know, coloring the film or having an actor no. do ADR and putting the line over the shoulder rather than on their face. And that stuff seems like much more likely to be how it's going to be used in movies in the future rather than like making the movie in some more substantive way. I think it probably depends on the type of film too. Like I I think about it more maybe in the commercial space, like, oh, like you know, commercials, because if, if I make part of my living writing oh. for commercials, like that's sort of where I feel like, oh, like they might use it in a way that's that just true. like replaces it. Like, but if it was, if they could replace a note, I mean, which, which they can, like, like I, like how it works is I give, I deliver for films or anything. I deliver like stems 
You know, so they if they're going to go in there, a music editor or somebody can go in there and change a note without me having to do that. Right, that's, that's fine. That's fine. But when you said earlier that the shit that it came up with was bad, I just, I took his comfort in it. Oh, it's bad. I mean, I tried to come up because I wrote like on a like probationary temporary period for The Onion, which is like my dream in this world. And so during the pandemic, they let me, you know, essentially like submit headlines as part of their like outside, not staffed positions, whatever, um, group. And um, amazing. So, and I was doing that with ChatGPT because I would like send my Onion headlines in. So this was during the pandemic, so it's not now, now, but I would send in my old Onion headlines to ChatGPT and say like, hey, come up with like a hundred that are in this kind of um, this, area of yeah. joke. And it would come up with a hundred and they were like all bad, like one or two out of a hundred. And it would come up with a hundred instantaneously. So it was not close. But wait, just getting back to your commercials and we should close with this because it's so impressive on my part and in some ways on your part too. Do you remember when I texted you that I think I just saw a commercial during the NBA playoffs with your music in it? Oh, yeah. I remember which one that was. It was but you heard it. It's something called Accenture. Was that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you heard it. But doesn't that speak to the fact that there's an authorship behind yeah, it in a commercial? I hope so. I felt, oh, that's my friend's music. I recognize that. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool to hear. So yeah. that speaks to the, um, let's say, indispensability of... Of the, the of the human beings, yeah. Yes, well, yes. Yeah, that's that's a nice sentiment. Well, listen, I thought this was really when you asked me to do this. I thought this was really supposed to be promotional for your album, and I was like essentially a shill. I'm so happy that we got to talk about other stuff, and I'm so happy that it was on Talk House, which is a more sophisticated thing than what I was worried that it was going to be like a, a promotion for your album. So I had prepared so much to promote your album. I was going to ask things like, hey, so when does it drop? And hey, tell people what they got in store for them, stuff like this. And I didn't have to do any of that. Well, you can use those lines. You can save those for the next one. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast. And thanks to Jesse Eisenberg and Emil Mosseri for chatting. If you like what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the great written pieces at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.